Welcome to Weird Studies, an arts and philosophy podcast with hosts Phil Ford and J.F. Martell. For more episodes or to support the podcast, go to weirdstudies.com. Welcome to Weird Studies. I'm J.F. Martel. This week, we discuss Susanna Clarke's latest novel, Piranesi, which came out in September 2020. Clarke's first novel, of course, was the 2004 bestseller Jonathan Strange and Mr. Narl. I confess that I haven't read that one, but Phil has. It's one of his favorite novels of all time. And having read Piranesi, I'm not surprised. Clarke is a true fantasist, a conjurer of wonders that are themselves initiations into the art of wonder. Piranesi is set in another world, a seemingly infinite suite of galleries, each one lined with enigmatic statues which, like all statuary, speak to us all the more clearly for being silent. The eponymous character is one of two people inhabiting those strange vast halls. Without knowing where he or the great palace he inhabits comes from, he has set himself the task of cataloging its contents and celebrating its mysteries. The novel takes a turn, however, and soon becomes something of a thriller. But above all, Piranesi is a journey into the mysteries of magic and memory, architecture and architectonics, and the strange fact of living in a world whose creator is everywhere absent and everywhere present. It became, for us, a pathway to new places. Speaking of created worlds, we're delighted to announce that our next episode will be a discussion with the documentary filmmaker Rodney Asher, whose latest film, A Glitch in the Matrix, debuted at Sundance last week and is being released on February 5th, 2021. That's just two days from the time I'm recording this. Some of you will recall that Phil and I did a whole episode on Asher's earlier films, notably Room 237 and The Nightmare, back in May of 2018. A Glitch in the Matrix picks up where those films left off. It's a phenomenological exploration of the simulation hypothesis, the popular idea that we are living in a computer simulation. Friend of the show, Eric Davis, is one of the experts whose musings punctuate this marvelous documentary. Our episode with Rodney won't come out for another two weeks, and since we felt that was a long time to wait for the diehard Asher fans in our audience, we've decided to release it for listeners-tier patrons on Saturday, February 6th, the day after the official release. To become a listeners-tier patron, just go to patreon.com slash weirdstudies. We'll be most grateful for your support. Okay, on Susanna Clarke's masterful, wonderful book, Piranesi. We hope you enjoy the show. Just before the show, I asked Meredith, our assistant, the Weird Studies assistant, who's also a doctoral student here in the musicology program, asked her what she was thinking about this book. I know she read it as well. I think she got a copy of it for Christmas. One of the things that she was talking about is how the world is very real. The world of Piranesi, 
that is presented to us from the first page is very real. It develops organically. Uh, the fact that this book is written as a series of journal entries allows the world to unfold organically. It's the journal entries of somebody whose whole life's purpose is to explore the infinite labyrinth of this world, the house with a capital H, as he calls it. He being the titular Piranesi, not his real name. A bit of an arch joke, which is explained at a certain point. But in any event, Piranesi devotes himself to wandering the literally endless halls of this vast palace, a kind of a palace of palaces, endless neoclassical rooms stretching off into the farthest possible distance with no end in sight. And I should say with an ocean captured in its lower tiers, it's a, this vast endless building is constructed in three tiers, the lowest of which the rooms are flooded with an ocean which sometimes spills up into the upper levels. There's the middle level, which is the habitable region where Piranesi lives out his days. And then there's the upper region, which is a realm of clouds and kind of a celestial realm, but it's too cold and damp to live there. Anyway, that's the world that Piranesi inhabits. And as I say, we're just presented with it because we just start reading and it's the journals. We're in this it. Guy. Yeah, right. We're in it. Meredith was pointing out how the journal format allows that world to kind of unfold organically and, and attain a real vividness. It feels very real. And yet there are constant little things that break in that disturb that seamless tissue of reality that the house seems to present us with. Things like him, Piranesi, talking about how the plastic of his glasses is like all worn out and so he has to repair his glasses. And you read that and your eyes trip right past it and then you might think like, oh shit, wait a minute. How is plastic a part of this strange world? Like we as the reader are in a position constantly being like, okay, so how do I make sense of this? It's the classic sort of thing with fantasy. Okay, I'm in a world that is not our world. What's the reality status of this world? Is it a world that exists in kind of never, never land? Is it a world that exists in parallel to ours? Is there a rational, our worldly explanation for this impossible world that we find ourselves in, this world of endless rooms lined with vast statues, neoclassical statues showing human beings and animals in almost every imaginable attitude? Is that a world that, as it were, actually exists? Is it something that Piranesi is dreaming? What's going on? And the appearance of these little incongruities like plastic or certain words that don't belong to the world of the house, but that belong in Piranesi's mind. Yeah. We're constantly wondering like, okay, so how, how does that work? How do we resolve this tension? And so one thing that this story is, among other things, is a kind of metaphysical whodunit. Mm -hmm. It is cunningly contrived to lead us from the seamless appearance of this reality to uh, edge of the construct. Now, this is a term that is going to come up in the next episode, the episode that drops after this one. 
edge of the construct being a term coined by Joshua Clover, a literary critic and theorist who wrote a book called 1989. Bob Dylan didn't have this to sing about. Also wrote a book on The Matrix for the BFI Film Guides series. And in it, he talks about how The Matrix and similar films thematize an edge of the construct. These moments of seeming lapse where things from outside the world appear without comment inside the world, all of these things set up a kind of an itch in the brain, like there's a puzzle here. As I say, it's like a metaphysical whodunit. We want to figure out like, okay, what is the reality status of this world? What does this world have to do with the world in which I am reading this book? Anyway, all of this is to try to kick things off by thinking about what this novel is doing. And one thing that it is doing is it is presenting us with an edge of the construct. It is giving us a kind of a, a seamless tissue of reality and then beginning to show us little breaks, little fragments. Does this mean that the world is irreal? Does it mean that Piranesi's experience is irreal in some way? Uh, you have to read the book to find out. And then for that reason, because it is almost constructed like a whodunit with clues that we follow and we're maybe a beat ahead, a step ahead of the hero, but maybe sometimes we're a step behind him. Yeah. This means that this is a particularly spoilable book. And yes. if you, you, dear listener, are hearing this and have not yet had an opportunity to read it, you might, if you don't want to have it spoiled for you, you might want to run out, buy a copy. And then return to this episode. Sure. But although the kind of answer I think was is fairly evident from the beginning, I thought. I don't know. Maybe it's just It wasn't to me, but, but, yeah, I, but I guess I it you depends. Might be, you might be cleverer than I am. No, it's not it's not cleverness. It's just because of um uh, for me, it was so Piranesi is the main character, the diarist whose journal entries we're reading. The book is epistolary, I guess, in that sense. It's basically a series of diary entries by this man who lives in this world of gallery upon gallery filled with mysterious statues, a woman with a beehive, a gorilla, uh, all kinds of beautiful sculptures that she- A, sa uh, a satyr with his- Forefinger pressed to his lips as if he is keeping a secret. Correct. And Susanna Clark does a beautiful job of using very sparse, austere language to evoke this strange space, which has such a color in my head. It's got this pale blue color, this world, you know, and it's so vibrant and alive. But anyways, from the start, for me, the giveaway was uh, that Piranesi is not alone in this world. There is another person in this world who, who is actually called by him the other the other capital o other yeah and uh they are working together on a project that the other is leading basically the other is here to try to find some great and secret knowledge that he believes is hidden somewhere in this house and piranesi although he's very skeptical about this belief that there's some kind of secret knowledge hidden here is nevertheless a kind person a very generous soul who is helping the other achieve this uh this goal but the other has a little a cell phone and um, Piranesi describes it as a shiny contraption or something that shines in his hand. And he consults it. To me, but from I, his description, it's clearly a cell phone. Yeah, I thought it was. And the minute I saw the cell phone, I'm like, oh, well, the other is from the real world and we're in an alternate world. So we've just spoiled it if you haven't read it. Uh, at least we Ooh. spoiled that part of it. But there's so much more to this book that I would recommend. I would recommend listening to our conversation and then reading it. And who knows, you may even enjoy it more. Um, like, I haven't read Susanna Clarke's first novel, 
Jonathan Strange and Dr. Norrell. Is that what it's called? And Mr. Norrell. And Mr. Norrell, yeah. I yeah. haven't read it. One uh, of, of my course, favorites. It's a book that I saw countless people reading on the subway back in Toronto, where I lived at the time it was released. And I always told myself, well, that's exactly the type of a book I would dig. It reminds me, without having read it, it reminds me of books like Little Big, or another book uh, by Christopher Priest called The Prestige, which was made into a, a fantastic film by Christopher Nolan. Anyways, it just seems to belong to that genre, which, interestingly, a Guardian reviewer I read just yesterday, as I was just trying to get a sense of what people have said about Clark's new novel, a genre that he described as, or she described as, magical archaism, as opposed to magical realism. And I like that. Magic nice. archaism, yeah. A kind of archaeology of magic. Mm. And you can see that again, I think, in this book. But what struck me about the book was the sense of place. And we've talked about sense of place before on this show and how important it is to both Phil and I when it comes to experiencing works of art. And in this book, it is palpable. It is such it is so a palpable. thick, atmospheric book. The world of the house, which the Piranesi does not describe the house as the world. He describes the house as being in the world because outside the world, there is a reality. But that reality- well, there's, sky, there's a sky with moon and stars and desolate courtyards. Yes. But the house itself is apparently seemingly infinite. He has undertaken long journeys. He's, his goal is to catalog all the statues in this house and to understand its architecture. And so he's undertaken like week-long journeys in these far-flung galleries that where strange presences are felt. And it's just this weird kind of haunted palace. But Piranesi's attitude is profoundly open and appreciative and grateful to the house. Like he says in the first, in the, on page three, he says, the beauty of the house is immeasurable, its kindness infinite. I just love that. Which is also the last line of the novel. Yes, exactly. He has this attitude of almost kind of um, worshipful reverence for this house, which to him is speaking to him, is telling him things through these statues. The statues are symbols to be deciphered. He theorizes about a bunch of them, about what they could mean. But he never asks himself the obvious question, which is, who built this place? <laughs> he sees the house as a person and so interacts. You don't ask a person, you don't, you know, you don't meet someone and go, wow, who built this person? Who made them? Yeah. You, yeah. You, the person is a singularity. It's an end in itself. And so the person approaches you as something that doesn't need to explain its existence to you. That's precisely what a person is, is something that doesn't need to explain itself to you. It is, and you have to reckon with its reality. And he treats the house in that way. And so the house from the beginning, it seems imbued with a kind of weird sentience. And so if the house is haunted, it's haunted by itself. It's a house that is alive somehow, and that Piranesi is trying to understand. And I could have just read 300 pages of Piranesi just cataloging various objects in this house. This is an example of the type of book which, when the machinery of plot becomes evident, I have to fight to keep reading because I think really? the magic of the book. Yeah. I'm, oh, I've never been interested that much. And I kind of agree with Phil K. Dick there. <laughs> For me, it's just like, I love the sense of place. And I find that often in a book, the plot will complicate 
the sense of place. So maybe I should just get in more into paintings and novels because in order to build a novel, you need a plot uh, most of the time. You need conflict. You need a telos. Yeah. Well, you just having you? having Piranesi endlessly wandering the halls of the house, happily cataloging statues and digging the scene would not make a compelling story. It's true. Well, Even if that is, I think for you and for me and for everyone I've talked to about this book, it seems to be our favorite aspect of the book is just the feel of the world. You like could we've do talked that. about mood in this show. This book has such an indelible mood. Sorry, what, what did you just say? No, I was just saying that I'm reading a very similar book, strangely, right now. Fernando Pessoa's The Book of Disquiet. Fernando Pessoa was a Portuguese poet who wrote under various pseudonyms, but he called them heteronyms because he didn't see them as pseudonyms at all. He saw them as other hymns, right? Other other versions of himself. And he wrote a fantastic book, which was discovered long after his death in a, like a chest somewhere, just a bunch of loose pages. And people have been putting it together in various forms called The Book of Disquiet. And the book is very similar because it's basically uh, the first part of the book is a man cataloging his dream world. And... Um, musing on the significance of these unreal things, which for him are more real than the physical reality that he finds when he wakes up. It's a fantastic book and it gives you atmosphere and it never wrecks it with a plot. <laughs> uh, it doesn't sell as yeah. well as Susanna Clark's book. Uh, but when we decided to do this episode, I admit that the plot, which is itself a fairly classic plot, that's not where the innovation is for me. That's not where the weird is in this book. The weird is in the the strangeness of that house, of that world. Sure, yeah. sure, absolutely. And yeah. that was my feeling as well, that what really commended this as a book that we should talk about on this show is this extraordinary world. Uh, one of my all-time, might be my all-time favorite world of any fantasy novel. Now, that's, that's, a, that's a lofty claim. There's also Earthsea and... Mm-hmm. There's a lot out there. I don't there. know. There's a lot of play now that I think of it. But it's it's got to be top five, you know. But at the same time, I'm going to argue that you actually do need to have the superposition of the two worlds. You need both the world of the house and you need our mundane world for this story or even for the mood to do what it has to do. And not just because you need a contrast to make the strangeness of the house more vivid because we don't actually visit this world until the end. It's right at the end that we break out of the house and we'll, I'm sure, get to the plot and explain exactly the plot mechanics, how, how this works. But for now, suffice it to say that there is the contrast between the world that originally appears to us as a seamless whole that begins to fray a bit at the edges and we realize there's something going on here. There's some unacknowledged and to the narrator unknown relationship to our world. At first, the narrator doesn't know there's any world outside the house, right? I think that our world exists as a background and as a telos for the house, not only just simply to give the character something to do to provide a plot that will then give us a, a readable story. I think that there are themes that Clark is working with. Absolutely. That require that superposition. And actually, to get back to this conversation I was having with Meredith, and she pointed out one that I had not really given enough thought to, which is memory. Yes. Yeah. You know? 
Well, let's talk about what the house is, according to the occultist uh, Lawrence Arn Sales, who ends up being the character who has theorized what this house is. Right. The house is a repository of everything humans have forgotten, ideas. Powers. Ideas and powers. And so the house is very similar to how Jung, in some of his writings, describes the collective unconscious as a kind of repository of that which has been forgotten. Yes. In psychoanalytic language, that which has been repressed. And so all these statues are representing figures of our past, of our collective past as a species that have been forgotten. And the occultist Lawrence Arne Sales, whom we'll get to when we talk about plot, I'm sure, describes himself as the discoverer of this world, describes himself as an anamnesiologist, right? I love that. That's in the epigraph to the book. Uh, there's a fictional epigraph at the very beginning that's attributed to him. And he says that what he does isn't philosophy, it's not anthropology, it's not history, it's anamnesiology, from the Greek word anamnesis, which is from Plato, which means unforgetting, remembering what has been forgotten. And so he is retrieving from there things that had been forgotten. And so the house is a construct. It's an effect of human activity. It owes its existence to the human. But what's so beautiful is that passage at the end, which you read in another episode we did recently, where Piranesi argues that these statues, although they are merely, on one level, mere representations of real things in the real world, are, on a deeper level, more real than the original things. That somehow these statues capture the reality that eludes us in life. And it's just, it's funny because I guess I was influenced by this because last night I was kind of writing away in my journal because I got a fountain pen. I can't stop writing. I've got hypergraphia. So I was writing <laughs> all kinds of thoughts. And one of the thoughts that I found myself writing was that dreams purify and clean up life. They basically just scrape away the dross and the, the excesses and the complications to give us life in its pure form. And I think that's something about the house. It feels like all of human history, all of human experience distilled to its kind of pure platonic form. Of course, the implication though, is that we've reversed Plato because the forms follow from experience. It's the experience of becoming that generates forms in the collective right. unconscious, but the forms are no less eternal for it. Even though mm. they come from becoming, they come out of becoming, they come out of becoming as eternal things. That's the mm. argument I make in The Realist Sacrament, which is a piece that nobody listening to this knows, but that eventually will come out. You know, I'll put it somewhere. Um, but yeah, and I just love that. I just love that aspect of the story. So you're right. In order for that to work as an aesthetic and a philosophical idea, you need the two worlds. I totally yes. agree with that. I just, I was just saying in a kind of almost kind of juvenile way that I would have liked to linger in that house with Piranesi forever, but I know why she did what she did. Yeah. I'll read the passage, by the way, that you just alluded to, because I just found it. Okay. So this is after Piranesi has come to learn that he has not always existed in this house. There's something about the house that causes forgetting. When right. people come from our world to the house, and the technique for that is what Lawrence Arne Sales has perfected. He figured out the way to open a gate, a path between this world and the house. 
that once people arrive at the house, it's dangerous because it's a labyrinth and it's the easiest thing in the world to fall into the labyrinth and forget that you were ever outside of it. It's like a dream in that way. You know, when, you've, when you're dreaming, you don't, almost never know that you're dreaming. Right. Uh, even if you become lucid, I don't know if this has ever happened to you. It's often happened to me that when I've become lucid in a dream, I become lucid for a moment and then I just forget that I ever was lucid. Yeah. And I get enfolded once again into the all-pervasive logic of the dream that permits no outside perspective. It permits no irony. It, it permits no distance from itself. Mm -hmm. And what Piranesi learns over time is that he's actually a fellow named Matthew Rose Sorensen that he was writing a book about Lawrence Arnes Sales and this strange, incestuous, and very sinister cabal of graduate students sort of clustered around Arnes Sales, that he was writing a book and following up with one of this circle, a psychologist named Ketterly. And Ketterly tricks Matthew into making the journey to this other realm, at which point, Matthew is stuck there because he doesn't know how to get back. Only Catterley knows how to get back. And Catterley just decides to turn Matthew into his slave. He makes him his servant and has him occupied in collecting data on the house. And just to connect the dots, um, Ketterly is the other, is the... Yes. Yeah, right. Yeah. And so all along, you know, Piranesi has been telling us how wonderful this other is. What a noble and intellectual gentleman he is. Piranesi, by the way, is one of the most pure-hearted, sweet, lovable yeah. characters I've ever read in a novel. A person of boundless goodness and kindness who loves the other and only gradually over time realizes that the other is this guy, Ketterly, who's done this terrible thing, has tricked this young man into falling into the maze where, and this is my point, he completely loses his memory. Right. He forgets entirely who he was and this other personality, personality of Piranesi, comes to the fore. Piranesi is the one that can look after himself, that can go fishing in the lower halls and gain sustenance. It's Piranesi who sees himself as the beloved child of the house, believes that he has always been in the house. But it's the house that has made him think that, you know, he is, in a sense, it's absolutely true that Piranesi is the child of the house. That's the personality that emerges as Matthew Rose Sorensen becomes insane and his personality is eroded away. Now, this idea that one thing that this book thematizes, maybe the thing that this book thematizes is memory. It's Matthew Rose Sorensen's faded memory. It's the degree to which Matthew Rose Sorensen is unavailable to Piranesi. They become two entirely distinct creatures. Piranesi only figures it out when he discovers some notebooks that he himself has written. He recognizes his own handwriting, but he doesn't understand how he's written what he's written because these notebooks are full of references to this other world that Piranesi knows nothing about. One of the things that Meredith pointed out and that I was talking about right at the beginning of the show, the way this book works as a kind of whodunit, almost a metaphysical whodunit, where we're piecing together little incongruities, little frayed edges of the construct to understand that this world is a world where lost memories have fled out of this world. 
that links up with the condition of being in this maze, in this labyrinth, which is of losing your memory and becoming someone else, becoming a creature of these lost memories. Yeah. And again, you kind of need the plot, the gradual de-occlusion, the coming to knowledge of Piranesi and the gradual uncovering of this lost self, Matthew Rose Sorensen. You need that in order to meditate on precisely this odd relationship between the world of the house and our world, which, as you say, is a kind of reverse Plato. Instead of the forms existing eternally and prior to human life, the forms are actually emergent from human life, but they go somewhere. They go to this house where they continue to live out an independent existence. Anyway, the person who rescues Piranesi slash Matthew Rose Sorensen is a detective who's on to Ketterly, who's been investigating the disappearance of this young man and has figured out a thing or two. And she figures out eventually with the help of Lawrence Arn Sales where Matthew is and how to get him. And eventually she kind of rescues him and she helps explain everything that's happened to him. Anyway, towards the end of the book, this police detective, Raphael, is talking to Piranesi and they're talking about the relationship between the statues, which seem to be almost like the secretions of memory, the world memory. The metaphor that Arne Sales uses is how cave systems are formed. You start with a trickle of water, the water disappears into the ground, but the water goes somewhere. And yeah. where it goes is it hollows out a little bit of ground and with the passage of millennia, you end up with a cave system. He says, well, you know, this world of the house is like that, except with memory. The memories flee, knowledge and power flee from this world. And we forget them. And they go to this other world where they create an impression of them, a space for themselves. And from this point of view, the statues are the reflection of that. Anyway, so Piranese is saying to Raphael, the other world, meaning our world, the mundane world that you and I inhabit, JF, the other world has different things in it. Words such as Manchester and police station have no meaning here because those things do not exist. Words such as river and mountain do have meaning, but only because those things are depicted in the statues. In this world, the statues depict things that exist in the older world. Yes, said Raphael, here you can only see a representation of a river or a mountain. But in our world, the other world, you can see the actual river and the actual mountain. And Piranesi continues, this annoyed me. Quote, I do not see why you say I can only see a representation in this world, I said with some sharpness. The word only suggests a relationship of inferiority. You make it sound as if the statue was somehow inferior to the thing itself. I do not see that that is the case at all. I would argue that the statue is superior to the thing itself, the statue being perfect, eternal, and not subject to decay. Right. Sorry, said Raphael. I didn't mean to disparage your world. <laughs> Lovely little exchange and philosophically fraught because Piranesi's defense of the statues as being in a sense realer than the things they depict is reminiscent of platonic justifications for the idea of forms, that the forms are those that do not decay. They're perfect. They're 
unharmed by time. And thus, all the things that manifest in time and are subject to it must come from somewhere. So they come from these forms. Yeah. And so he is actually making a somewhat platonic sounding justification for them. But as you say, it's interesting because the arrow of causality goes the other way from where it does. And Yeah, because he's theory. not denying that the statues are representations. It's precisely by virtue of their being representations that they attain to the eternal, which is a reverse Platonism. Because Plato would argue that the forms are not representations. The things we see here are the representations. Uh, one Plato, there's other Platos. This theme of memory is super important. And I guess it could lead us into the topic of the precedence or the trope at work here. And I don't mean trope in a negative way as a cliche. I mean, there is a, she's working with a trope in fantasy, which I guess I would trace back to the Renaissance idea of the, the memory palaces, right? So in the Renaissance, yeah. orators, and this goes way back to, to the ancient world, actually, orators, people who had to memorize long speeches, people like Cicero, and the technique was really perfected at the Renaissance, at least insofar as the records we have access to are concerned. Orators and scholars, because books were expensive and rare, and you often had to travel 200 miles to read a book, they would develop really, really effective mnemonic techniques for remembering long passages of text, long texts. So what they did was they would construct in their minds a palace, a memory palace, where they would store information, much like we do on hard drives now, except the computer was in their minds. Right. So they would build a space with many rooms. And in the rooms, there might be alcoves or there might be drawers. Mm -hmm. Every uh, practitioner of this decidedly magical art would choose his own or her own way of doing this. And for people who are interested in reading about this, the work of Francis Yates, I guess, is still the standard go-to place for this, as far as I know. Um, and they would store information in various places in this palace. And so when they needed to remember something, they would just imagine themselves entering the memory palace, going to the right spot, opening the right drawer or alcove, and then finding the text ready-made for them to remember. I think most people listening to this are probably familiar with this because there's been a kind of a resurgence of interest in these things recently. It's always been one of my favorite magical techniques, the mnemonic art of remembering and recalling because, I mean, we, we have to realize that in the 16th century, in the 17th century, there were people who could recite the Bible from beginning to end by heart. Um, yeah. So this is how memory has degraded as a faculty in our civilization. Yeah. It's crazy. It's weird to think that memory itself is one of the things that has seeped out of this world. And that memory right. itself would be the thing that would end up in the other <laughs> world. Because it totally has. I mean, this is really obvious if you're an educator, that the fact that looking things up is the work of a second. 
if you're reading something that refers to the Cuban Missile Crisis, you don't need to know that that happened in 1962. You can just go to Wikipedia and it will instantly tell you. And so this is like what Plato was talking about in the Phaedrus, the offloading of memory onto techni, whether that techni is a book, a papyrus manuscript, or a codex printed book, or the internet. And as a result, like when you're teaching a class, one of the hardest goddamn things is to get people to get any sense of chronological sequence. Right. Because for most of my students, remembering dates is as difficult and feels pretty much as random and pointless as memorizing the license plates of cars that you see driving in front of your house. Yeah. But, but you and I, Phil, remember a time when, I don't know what your record was, but at some point you probably had a hundred phone numbers in your mind that you knew by heart. Yeah. Probably. That easy. And now it's about one, which is my number. I can yeah. remember my phone number. Yeah, I don't even remember my wife's number. No, so, me neither, <laughs> well, because I, I just yeah. pressed the little picture yeah, of her exactly. in my phone. You exactly. Know? So that that means something. That That's something. Because you know, it reminds me of that discussion we had about um, the argument that's been made by some, uh, you know, I guess, techno-utopians that the average person ingests or takes in like 10,000 times more information per day now than they did a thousand years ago. Except that the person a thousand years ago might have had the entire Bible in their heads, you know, like, yes. Uh, yes. And, and be able to. So you think about arts like exegesis. When a theologian or a, a philosopher in the Renaissance sat down to write a book, they didn't have to look up the references. They were just doing them from memory because people memorized as a matter of course. A scholar was first and foremost a memorizer of things. Yeah. What we consider the queen of faculties, imagination, was what they considered fancy and which they had as a rather low level faculty, not a terribly important faculty. For them, the queen of faculties was memory. It was the source of everything else. Yeah. And they would probably find it incomprehensible that we would have an advanced civilization, this very complex culture that is based on a kind of vast amnesia. Right. Right. You know, Fantastic. That, that is like coming from the, just the offloading of memory onto techne. But the good news, according to Susanna Clark, and I guess Plato, is that although we've forgotten memory in our civilization, the memories, though forgotten, are not gone. Everything is stored somewhere. It's like Lawrence Arne Sales applies the first law of thermodynamics to the psyche. He's basically saying there's a conservation of energy going on. And this is exactly Jung's argument as well. He said, nothing disappears. Everything is recorded. Everything is stored. Even to use recorded yeah. is uh, the, uh, the worst metaphor because it implies that it might have not have been recorded. Right. It's like Bergson says, the past is there somewhere. Memory yeah. is just the faculty by which we access something that's there already. And so... Everything is somehow there. That's why Lawrence Arne Sales describes himself not as an amnesiologist, but an anamnesiologist, because everything somehow can be retrieved. What's interesting to me is that the image that was chosen by the Renaissance Magi to represent memory was not a natural image of caves or forests, but an architectural image. Yes. And I think that that's important because... The one thing that's interesting about memory palaces is that they can be extremely detailed, but they don't have an outside. They are interior spaces 
which are, they are totalizing interior spaces. You can add more rooms to your memory palace and you could add a courtyard if you wanted to, but you're still always within the palace. The, mm. the construct, if we want to talk about the edge of the construct, the construct both in uh, Susanna Clark's book and in these memory palaces, the world is the house. It's like that wicked short story by... Um, Borges, The Library of Babel, which oh, yes. I wouldn't be surprised if that was one of the sources or at least one of the inspirations for Clark's book. It starts off, the universe, which others call the library, is composed of an indefinite, perhaps an infinite number of hexagonal galleries with enormous ventilation shafts in the middle, encircled by very low railings. One of my favorite opening lines, like, that's the universe. But <laughs> what happens when we picture the universe as an interior space? That's what's so interesting. And I guess Piranesi, the character, that name was given to him by Ketterly as a kind of joke. But the name... Uh, because Piranesi is the name of a, a draftsman of, I believe, the 18th century who specialized in creating imaginary palaces of like endless echoing hallways of neoclassical architecture. With no exterior. Sometimes yes. you saw light that's seen in his prints, which I strongly recommend to everybody that you check out these prints that uh, the real Piranesi published in the 18th century, uh, they are amazing interior spaces that go on forever. There's machines and, and galleries and balconies and levels to them. Piranesi kind of wrote the book that Escher was drawing on when he started making his own uh, interior spaces. But this idea of infinite interior spaces is a trope in fantasy that I find really interesting because of what it does philosophically. So if we think of interior spaces in general, of architectural space, to us, they intimate subjectivity, the control, the transform, the human. What is outside the house is the wild. What is inside the house is what we know, the familiar, the, mm -hmm. uh, the heimlich, as opposed to the unheimlich, which would be the outside. Right. But when the interior space is all there is, then there's already a blurring of inside and outside. Yeah, true. And it's even weirder when the interior space is not made by us, right? Yeah. So you'll have like alien architecture in Lovecraft where um, Lovecraft will describe these explorers in Antarctica stumbling upon a vast city that was built millions of years ago by some other species. And he describes these spaces much like Borges describes his library or Clark describes her house as just these incredibly suggestive, mysterious, vast, complex geometrical spaces. Lovecraft often uses the word cyclopean to describe them because the Greeks in the Peloponnesus, they had these big, huge walls of stone that they didn't know who built them. So they assumed the cyclopses uh, or the, mm. the cyclopes, I guess the plural is, built these things because they didn't think the humans could build them, even though it was their ancestors who'd built them, or at least another... A human group that was, they attributed this architecture to non-human entities. And what's interesting about that is that it completely blurs the line between inside and outside. I mean, mm. to be inside an alien architectural space is to be in the ultimate outside. All of the the semiotic signals that would tell you that you're in a known space. Oh, well, there's, a there's a set of stairs. There's a statue. I know what the these things are made. They're fashioned. But since they're made and fashioned by something that you can't possibly know, or since they're made and fashioned by 
nothing. Maybe they're eternal. They become extremely strange. And, uh, and that, I think that the real root of all this, the memory palaces, the, the, the strange alien architecture and fantasy and science fiction, I think we can trace them all back, I would guess, to dream architecture. Because I think that's the one aspect of that's dreams. That's exactly yeah. where I was going to go. Yeah. Is that you dream complex architectural spaces that were built by nobody or at they were built by your own mind in your sleep. But we've all probably had dreams of really subtle, complex architectural spaces, very beautiful spaces sometimes, or horrible spaces, horrific spaces that um, are, how do we describe them? Are these works of culture? Are we all little architects designing places? In our, or are they works of nature? Is architecture mm. always already natural. Like I can mm. tell you why we built this or that building, but why we build is itself mysterious. And if I see an, arch an evidently architectural space that was built by nobody or by things that I can't possibly understand, then the mystery of all architecture, the kind of natural stratum that lies underneath all architectural activity, even human comes to the fore. The idea that there's an interior space that is known and an exterior space that is unknown just goes out the window. Huh. And we are left with an interior that is every bit as mysterious as the exterior. Mm, that's interesting. Yeah, I was going to talk about dreams because the whole time I'm reading this, and indeed, anytime I'm reading anything that conjures a world of strange architectures, you know, Susanna Clarke's first book, Jonathan Strange and Mr. Narl, has a very similar world, the world behind the mirrors, which uh, those who've read the book will know instantly what I'm talking about, might in fact be the lineal ancestor of the world imagined here in Piranesi. I'm always in reading about such worlds reminded of my dreams. I once said on this show that even dreams that take place in broad daylight still have a feeling of taking place at night. For me, at mm -hmm. any rate. And likewise, even dreams that take place in the open air always feel like they're enclosed somehow. Yeah. That everything is architecture. And it's interesting to think about what architecture is. And I like that you disturb the sense we have. Like architecture is built and it belongs to the realm of the human and to the realm of things we decide and plan and engineer. Whereas in dreams, of course, they're not, not really, or at least it's ambiguous. You know, we've talked at length in the show on M. John Harrison's Course of the Heart about spiders and spider webs and the idea, very familiar idea that a spider's web is not an exterior building. It's not architecture. It's actually an extension of the spider's nervous system. The spider can leave the web, but nevertheless, the web is part of the spider. What if we thought about houses and buildings in that way, that they are to us as shells are to snails and, or turtles? They're homes that, that we don't build them so much as we secrete them. We secrete architecture. Yeah. Now, from that point of view, the question of inside and outside becomes very interesting because then if you are inside a building... If that building is to some extent coextensive with you or consubstantial with you, then 
What does it mean to talk about interior and exterior there? There's just you and your shell that you carry around with you. You know what I right, mean? Right. If we, if we apply it collectively, we could say that architecture is to humans what spider webs are to spiders or what beehives are to bees. We don't wonder which bee came up with the idea of a beehive. We just realize that bees make beehives as a function of their makeup, as a function of their programming, for lack of a better term. And there, it's possible that our idea that the things we surround ourselves with are all intended and attributable entirely to the intent behind them. It's impossible that that idea is false, although the intentions might be true within the context of the instinctual construct that is the human. It nevertheless might be the case that we would have built architecture even if we had never come up with the idea of intention. Imagine a civilization of people who don't have consciousness but have architecture. Mm-hmm. We know of such things, bees. And I, I, I'm not saying bees aren't conscious in, in any way. I'm just saying that bees are not self-reflexive as far as we can tell, okay? Yeah. Um, so they don't have, you don't have little bee philosophers theorizing about how the universe was made. Bee epistemology or yeah, whatever. Right. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> um, so, but you can imagine a society as complex as ours, which nevertheless doesn't have self-reflection. You can do that as a thought exercise. In fact, I think in Borges, in the Library of Babel, he's kind of suggesting something like that, that would include even books. In the Library of Babel, you have an infinite number of rooms with a set number of books in each one. Each book has a apparently random configuration of 22 letters. There's 25 symbols because there's 22 letters, which basically he takes that from Kabbalah, the Hebrew alphabet. And then you have uh, the comma, the period, and the space. So all these books are made up of these symbols. The titles on the spines have no relation to the content because there is no content, except that the librarians of this bizarre universal library occasionally find coherent sentences in books, one or two sentences. There are legends about one guy who found a whole book that was coherent. And of course, if the library is infinite, then the narrator theorizes that every possible coherent book already exists somewhere in the library. But of course, there's no intentionality necessary. All you need is the system to, to work, the yeah, algorithm. It's, it's of, purely algorithmic. Yeah, it's purely algorithmic. So, you know, what Susanna Clark does with architecture in her novel, Borges does with books. And I think this is, he's drawing on here an experience which I imagine librarians have. You've talked about this before, the archival sublime. Yes. Which is where, like, as a reader or a writer, you and I, we know why this book exists. Like we can say, Susanna Clark wrote a novel. She's trying to follow up her first bestseller with another one, or she's trying to understand the mysteries of memory or whatever. But when you're a librarian faced with an endless array of books, room after room after room after room of books, the books stop looking intended. They start to look like a natural phenomenon. And you start to see all these little micro intentions that lie behind each book as just functions of a kind of weird instinct that generates books and literature. Nice. And so you're, nice. Borges is getting at that kind of archival sublime in that story where he's restoring books to a natural stratum, which is usually occluded by our idea that books are perfectly planned, intended, and, and decided. 
that there's something going on, even in literature, which is much deeper, stranger, mysterious, more instinctive than how we rationalize it in the day to day. This is reminding me of Gaston Bachelard's Poetics of Space, which I haven't read in literal decades, so I don't remember much about it. But I seem to recall that he was constantly working with this figure of like, you know, think about birds' nests and human yeah. houses and understanding human habitation as a kind of expression of the same drive that birds have when they make their nest. And thinking about the way that houses are organized being things that are expressions of the human, expressions of how we are as human beings. And so like, you know, the idea that the basement represents the the unconscious. His discussion of it gave me the distinct impression that we have basements because we have an unconscious. Right. You know, right. that that's how we're going to build our houses because there has to be a place that lies beneath that has the things that you sort of put away and forget about, a place of darkness and mystery that is seldom visited, but nevertheless underlies everything, that that's how we are. And so in building our houses, the way birds build nests, the house bears the impress of how it is we are. Yeah. I, like, I might be doing violence to Bachelard's ideas. As I say, it's been a hell of a long time, but that's what I take you to be saying also about Borges and his the idea about books that he's working with and yes, the Library yes. of Babel. And I think Borges is probably more nihilistic than Clark is in her alternate world, because in her universe, well, first of all, it's not the universe, the house, it's an alternate dimension. So there is still our world alongside it. But there are two things that aren't just sculptural in her world, and that is the sea and the sky. That's right. And that's important. That's really important, I think, because... You know, one of the thinkers that we've discussed having on the show and we've been in touch with him on and off is uh, Jairus, right? Uh, right? Who wrote a book called North, which I think is a phenomenal, phenomenal piece of scholarship and, and kind of like philosophical exploration. He makes the argument in that book and his argument is much more subtle than I'm going to, I'm kind of, I'm straw manning him. So I'm sorry, Jairus. I know you listen to the show. I don't mean, but there is a kind of um, relativization of the idea of above and below, you know, the, the hermetic idea that there is a, a vertical axis, right? which is much older than hermeticism. It goes way back to like Sumeria and Babylon. The first civilizations were organized around a vertical axis. And according to many scholars, that's what began the kind of tragedy of human civilization as a kind of pyramidal uh, hierarchy of power and oppression, basically, right. is the idea. I would argue against any relativization of that axis. And I think that Susanna Clark's book is basically suggesting that that vertical axis of the below and the above is not something that's culturally contrived. If humans made it up, mm. they made it up because they discovered it not because they created it or fashioned it wholesale for mm. political reasons. I completely disagree with that, that theory, that it's a cultural thing. And maybe that's because of my personal experience. You know, as a little kid, I'll tell you a little story. Before my parents separated, so I must have been three or four, I was with my mother in the laundry room in our house at the time in Quebec. And she was doing the laundry and I was on the floor uh, and... I heard a hissing sound, and so I looked under the water heater to trace the sound, and I saw the gas fire under there. 
this blue gas fire, which was just burning eternally. And I would constantly go back and look at this gas fire occasionally when I thought of it. I remember I remember the thrill of seeing this dark space under the furnace and this beautiful blue flame. It was so freaking, ma- it was like looking into the Christmas tree, you know? Yeah. I could just yeah. imagine myself going into that little dark world where there's a light there, but it doesn't seem to be illuminating anything. It's just darkness with this blue flame. It was so enchanting. And then around the same time, I guess, I was with my mom and dad and my brother, who was probably an infant. Well, he was an infant at that stage. We were driving back from my grandparents through Vanier, where I now live, back to Quebec, where we lived. And we're going down a street and there was a church. And at the top of the church, there was a neon cross. And my mom says, look, that's that's a, a symbol of Jesus or something like that. And so I, in my head, the cross was Jesus. So I looked and I, I kept saying the word Jesus and looking at the cross and the cross was the same blue as the gas fire under the furnace. Huh. And whenever I think of the above and the below, when I read like the emerald tablet, you know, or alchemical text, and I think of as above, so below, I always think of that blue cross at the top of the steeple and the gas fire under the furnace. That to me was the revelation of the axis. It's not something that I can say at that age, I could have contrived into some kind of, you know, construct of the universe. It was to me, it felt like, and I'm not saying that it is, but I think to me that the reason why I probably would argue that it is ontological and fundamental is because of that experience. That to me, that was the revelation that the above and the below mirror one another. They're the same blue. And weirdly enough, that blue is the color of the light with which I bathe Susanna Clark's house. turn to something that you were talking about before, the memory art. So I have a story about that. Great. I've never myself attempted memory art, although I've been tempted to, but uh, 
I already have a lot of things I have to do. It's a very laborious process, learning memory art. But people do, you know, there's even contests, memorization contests. I believe there was a, a book called, uh, what is it, Moonwalking with Einstein, I think might be the title, which is about the world of competitive memory. Huh. People who go into these old texts of, you know, these Renaissance texts of memory art, and they learn the ancient secrets of how to accomplish these prodigious feats of memory, like, for example, having the entire Bible memorized word for word. There is a student of mine, actually, she has been on this show, Carrie O'Brien. Right. She was on the Pauline Oliveris episode that we did. Carrie was one of my doctoral advisees. And back in the day, she was doing her qualifying exams, which is something every doctoral student has to do. And the way we do it is that you do a topic with three professors. Each professor, you do a different specific historical topic. And she did one with me, but with my colleague, Giovanni Zanavello, who's a scholar of Renaissance or early modern music, she did a topic on memory art, which has an important place in music history from that time. And what Giovanni had Carrie do was not only to learn about it, but I think quite wisely wanted her to actually practice memory art, to learn the rudiments of it, because it's a little bit like meditation. In fact, memory art is a kind of meditation. It is, absolutely. And, and yeah. if you are going to write about the place of meditation in a certain kind of culture, it probably helps if you have some firsthand experience with what it is, right? So it's the same idea here. So Carrie, with her typical diligence and enthusiasm threw herself into this project. And as I recall, one of her tasks was to memorize the first chapter of Mary Carruthers' The Book of Memory, which you mentioned Francis Yates' work on memory art. I would also mention Carruthers' Book of Memory as a valuable historical study of the place of memory art in medieval and early modern culture. But anyway, she had to memorize the first chapter of that. And then she also memorized a poem by Allen Ginsberg, America. Mm. What was interesting is originally Giovanni had Carrie doing it in the old school way where you choose a somewhat classical. There is a sort of a classical looking courtyard out in front of the Jacobs School of Music that has different objects and benches and a fountain and so on. And so he was originally asking Carrie to use that as her memory palace. But she found that difficult. And in the end, she chose her grandparents' house, a house she knew microscopically from childhood. And she found it very easy to imagine, okay, so there's this, I don't know, I'm making this up, but like there's a bureau in the front hallway and there's a little drawer in that drawer you imagine putting certain things just as you described earlier and the results were astonishing so in her qualifying oral exam Giovanni had her show off what she could do and this as I recall started with her reciting Allen Ginsberg's America line by line perfectly and then Giovanni was like okay so what I want you to do is read every other line so skip every other line, which she did with no difficulty. Oh my God. And then he's like, okay, now I would like you to recite the passage that you just recited line by line, but backwards. So going in reverse order of lines. And then finally to have her, in fact, recite individual lines backwards, word for word. 
And she was able to do it each time. And all of us sitting there in the examining room had her jaws on the floor, which is fucking astonishing to see this. Wow. <laughs> and it was a graphic demonstration of the kind of virtuosic mental acts that become possible with this kind of memory art. When memory is internalized in this way. Weaponized. Weaponized, <laughs> yeah. I became aware of it as an immensely powerful mental technique. One thing she told me afterwards that I found very interesting is that there's a kind of a psychodynamics of memory. Like, unfortunately, our idea of memory, as with most things to do with mind, is given us by the most advanced technology right. that is available to us. This is a point that's made in Rodney Asher's new movie, A Glitch in the Matrix, which is about simulation theory. And we are dropping an episode on that. Next. Next, after this one. Um, but right at the beginning, in fact, the very first thing in that film is an articulation of this idea that our theories of mind always tend to take the shape of whatever the most advanced technology is at a given time. And so we always think of the mind in terms of the computer, and we think of memory as a kind of passive recording. Yeah. The way, hard, yeah. Hard yeah, drive. Like a hard drive. Yeah. Yeah. But... Something that Carrie was saying, and this is something that's familiar to anybody who's read Walter Ong, uh, one of the Toronto school, along with Marshall McLuhan, who wrote a lot about the psychodynamics mm. of orality and, and primarily oral cultures, uh, is that this technology does not, is not just a neutral, passive recorder. The technology that you use, and this is very McLuhan-esque, you know, the medium is the message that you will be transformed by this technology. And so... One thing that Carrie said is that it becomes quite difficult to disagree with things that you have memorized in this way. Right. That the modern, there's a kind of a modern culture of huh. disputation, like a way that we have of organizing our mental lives, of our intellectual lives, of institutionalized intellectual life, the universities and similar institutions. That, uh, you know, what counts as good work is original work. If you're a doctoral student, you have to write a dissertation. And what makes a dissertation a dissertation is that you are attacking, maybe solving a problem that no one has quite ever touched on before. Maybe they've had a different approach to the same problem, or maybe the problem has lain undiscovered all this time. But one way or another... What your intellectual work cannot be is the mere gloss of existing work. Originality is the coin of the realm. Now, this is kind of funny because there are sort of structural problems with this, that in academia, the coin of the realm is also peer review. And so there's a sort of a contradiction there that you have to be original, and yet your originality can only be judged by experts in the field who will decide whether it amounts to anything or not. You see right. the, you see the contradiction there that uh, you need some kind of consensus that something original, is original. Original, but not too original. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, that's what <laughs> ends up happening is, yeah. you know, academic knowledge tends to walk that line between original, but not too original, right? Which is probably a good policy. Which is probably a good policy. Or you end up with evil, demented occultists like Lawrence Arne Sales, who is, right. by the way, one of my absolute favorite articulations of one of my absolute favorite weird fiction tropes, which is the decadent, possibly insane occultist professor. Yeah. 
that's what I aspire to. I in still my own want life. you to. You have to read Ligotti's The Night School. I'll, I'll send you. I'll, I'll scan it for you. It's okay. It's cool. my favorite iteration of that trope. But go on. <laughs> but the basic idea of originality, of non-repetition, that real intellectual work means original intellectual work. That is a rather modern idea. In the intellectual culture of the early modern period, which is not so predicated on looking things up, where books are rare and expensive. One interesting thing that Giovanni has told me about is the number of books that he has researched in European libraries that have like fucking chains and spikes and shit on them, like really fucking metal books, like literally metal, because there was one copy of this, like a Psalter or, or a um, Bible or whatever. There's one copy of it that is chained to the desk. Yeah. And to make sure that you don't fuck with it too much, it's covered in fucking spikes. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like it's an armored, defended book. That gives you a sense of like the material culture where books are rare and precious and heavily shared. And so memory is a necessary technology to be able to carry this stuff around with you because you probably don't have the opportunity of carrying around a book, the actual book with you, right? But the thing is that when you are committing things to memory in the way that Carrie committed Allen Ginsberg's America to memory, you're capable of navigating that space in ways that seem almost science fictional to us now. You know, a book or a text becomes like architecture. It becomes mm. like the house. It becomes a place that you can move in from room to room, from statue to statue. Yeah. And just as the house is alive to Piranesi, to him, it is more real than what we think of as reality. The house is mind would be one way you could put it. And Piranesi doesn't put it that way, but for him, the house is mind or is God. You know, that is, in fact, the relationship that you have to the meaning of a text that you yeah. have metabolized in this way. It is a place for you, a place you move around in and within which you have perfect liberty. And your mastery lies in your comprehension, your ability to enfold all of its details in yourself and hopscotch your way through them. However, there is no outside of the text. I mean, what you were saying about insides and outsides is very much to the point here. You are fully enclosed in this architecture of meaning. And Carrie was saying like the modern style of disputation where, you know, if you're a Beethoven scholar and I'm a Beethoven scholar and you've published on Beethoven's Misa Solemnis and I want to publish on Misa Solemnis, then I've got to take your thoughts into account, but I can't just initial them. I have to say something different and I'll probably say something different by attacking you and saying that your ideas are for some reason or other horseshit and my ideas are better. It's a classic academic move, but that's very much a product of our own technological age. In a different era where the technology is different, where memory is the technology of choice, then the operative mode is more glossing, more commentary upon a text, yeah. the, uh, the marginalia upon a text, where knowledge becomes a kind of vast, uh, you could imagine a book 
almost a palimpsest with layers of overwriting and, and marginalia. It becomes like the Torah, the, a book like yeah. the Torah or the I Ching, in fact, is the physical embodiment of such cultures. You're absolutely right. And you know what? The, the attitude of artists, scholars, philosophers before the modern era was exactly that. When a genius like Thomas Aquinas was actually generating original work, they almost necessarily had to attribute it to grace or to the muses yes. or to something outside of them. Yeah. And I think that interestingly- The idea of it just being you yeah. is either impossible to imagine or just idiotic. Yeah. Like, how are you as an individual going to come up with anything of value? Right. And if you read, like, the writings of the real progenitors of the Renaissance, like Erasmus and those, and, and later on, Ficino, I'm remembering a particular passage here, but uh, of how, when you read these Renaissance scholars, these guys who were rediscovering the ancients, they are like Piranesi. They are these kind of, like, wide-eyed explorers, picking up statues, looking at things all over, and, and just kind of taking it all in. The proper mode for a Renaissance scholar to operate in is one of being a, a cataloger or a retriever of knowledge, right? That the knowledge is all there, but we, we, our job is to excavate and bring it back. Right. And so, Piranesi is giving us a good exemplar of a different way of being, a kind of openness to the world. Yes, uh, absolutely. A charitable attitude, not just to our environment, to the house, or in our terms, to the universe, but also charitable to the other, even to our own detriment, if necessary. Yes. But what, what he gains from that is real wisdom. I mean, in the end, he does. He has the great and secret knowledge that Ken yes. really wants. He has it. And uh, you read that passage. I'm reminded here of the Nietzsche's uh, phrase, his line, Without forgetting, it is impossible to live at all. Piranesi finds himself intellectually, spiritually, personally as a, as a human being, not by imposing or affirming some identity, some original identity on the people who surround him or on the house, but precisely in losing his identity and opening himself completely to the text of the universe. And I think that it's important that Piranesi be the sweetheart he is, this uh, like just adorably, almost saintly figure. Yeah. I don't know if saints are adorable, but- uh, uh, Holy fools. Uh, some of them became saints. A lot of them didn't. But he's definitely that type of, almost a kind of um, uh, Percival kind of figure, right? Yeah, At the absolutely. Yeah. That yeah. occurred to me yeah. repeatedly. Percival also being lost in a maze- for most of his life, the story, at least as Richard Wagner tells it, is that Kundry, after being spurned by Parsifal, condemns him to wander in the wilderness forever looking for Monsalvat. And it's only the magic of Good Friday that permits him finally to find his way back. You know, what you say about Piranesi is very important, that he represents a mode of functioning, a way of being in the world. And it's a way of being in the world that is very difficult for us, but I would not say it's lost, but it sometimes can feel lost. I've been reading a lot of Charles Taylor or rereading a lot of Charles Taylor, namely his book, A Secular Age, which has really heavily influenced my thinking. And I think it lies in the background of a lot of what we do on the show. Mm -hmm. And it's been interesting to prepare for this recording while also reading what... 
Taylor has to say about the transformation from the Middle Ages and the early modern period to our day as a withdrawal into what he calls exclusive humanism and the buffering of the self, the sense that we are swaddling ourselves in a kind of an armor, almost a philosophical armor that permits us distance from the field of potentially hostile or threatening spiritual forces that an enchanted world is teeming with. And um, Piranesi is a completely unbuffered self. You know, he does not look at the house as an exterior, as an object set against himself. The other does. The other speaks, which is to say Catterley, speaks disparagingly of it. Oh, this bloody place with its endless dusty halls filled with statues covered in bird shit. There's lots of birds in the house, by the way, which is important. He can only see it as a dismal container for human life, certainly not fit for containing his human life, although he's certainly happy to consign Matthew Rose Sorensen to it. It's only saving grace is the fact that, or the his belief that it contains some secret, which if yes. found would allow him to finally leave this place. It would have exhausted right. its, its purpose. He's a utilitarian. He's a modern yes. utilitarian. Yeah. And that's really important. The contrast between Piranesi and the other is a contrast between different epistems, between what we can recognize as a modern epistem, the epistem that Charles Taylor spends 800 pages minutely breaking down and analyzing. Ketterly is an exemplary figure of this. For him, the, the house exists only as an object for his instrumental rational projects. And Piranesi represents the world from which we come, an enchanted world. And there's a brief moment where Piranesi actually characterizes it, where he says, well, the other isn't religious. And I thought that was very interesting right. because, among other things, the first person narration of Piranesi shows somebody who lives in a world that is always already meaningful. Yeah. Early on, he walks into a hall and he sees a flock of birds wheeling around together in a slightly unusual manner, which he takes as a sign. And he watches the statues that the flocks alight upon. And he derives a meaning that turns out to be absolutely accurate. He performs a kind of off-the-cuff divination that turns out to tell you the entire story. Yeah. Except, of course, at the beginning, you can't know what that story is and you can't know what the divination pertains to. But nevertheless... He takes it as a matter of course that he understands that the birds have a mind not like his, but a mind that at least is understandable by him. It's not difficult for him to understand that he would want to talk to the birds sometimes or that the birds would talk to him, not through human language, of course, but through their actions by the statues that they light upon. Yeah. He takes it as read that the various things that he finds, if he sees like an octopus swimming around in the lower halls, that that has a meaning. Everything has a meaning to him. And he has to respect that. Whereas, yeah. of course, Ketterle can't possibly understand that no. because as... Charles Taylor points out one of the fundamental aspects of the modern dispensation is the idea that mind belongs only to humans and it exists only between our ears. And if there's one thing that this idea of the vast, infinite architectural space conveys to us, it's this concept of the meaningful universe, 
of That's uh, right. if everything is architecture, then everything is on some level intentional. It's basically what Malkin means when he says he believes in the sacramental universe. Yes. The universe yes. as a sacrament. The house is a sacrament. And yes. the religious attitude is to treat the house as a sacrament. Our duty if we are to take a page from Piranesi's book, is to treat our real world as the house. Exactly. And this, I think, gives us the meaning of the ending, which to me is one of the most perfect endings of any fantasy book I've ever read. I found it quite moving, actually. So Piranesi is saved. You know, Ketterly is defeated. Raphael is able to prevail upon... Piranesi to return to the world because she's like, you know, you have a mom and dad and two sisters and friends who miss you. They wonder what happened to you all these years ago when you disappeared. And eventually Piranesi returns. And it's interesting because in the very last part of the book, it's no longer told from the point of view of Piranesi, but it's also not told from the point of view of Matthew Rose Sorensen. Matthew Rose Sorensen is gone. He's not dead, but he's permanently asleep inside of Piranesi. But Piranesi is also now asleep. There's a new personality that you get the impression is a kind of a fusion of them or a kind of a development upon them, able to exist in both worlds. And it's the bothness of the worlds, the idea that there is this kind of closeness, a necessary relationship between these two worlds that obtains all the time, whether we notice it or not, that is what comes out at the end. So at the end, he's just going to meet Raphael for a cup of coffee. They become friends. I'm going to read you the end. So this is the last entry of this journal. This afternoon, I walked through the city, making for a cafe where I was to meet Raphael. It was about half past two on a day that had never really got light. It began to snow. The low clouds made a gray ceiling for the city. The snow muffled the noise of the cars until it became almost rhythmical, a steady shushing noise, like the sound of tides beating endlessly on marble walls. I closed my eyes. I felt calm. There was a park. I entered it and followed a path through an avenue of tall, ancient trees with wide, dusky, grassy spaces on either side of them. The pale snow sifted down through bare winter branches. The lights of the cars on the distant road sparkled through the trees, red, yellow, white. It was very quiet. Though it was not yet twilight, the street lights shed a faint light. People were walking up and down on the path. An old man passed me. He looked sad and tired. He had broken veins on his cheeks and a bristly white beard. As he screwed up his eyes against the falling snow, I realized I knew him. He is depicted on the northern wall of the 48th Western Hall. He is shown as a king with a little model of a walled city in one hand, while the other hand he raises in blessing. I wanted to seize hold of him and say to him, In another world you are a king, noble and good. I have seen it. But I hesitated a moment too long, and he disappeared into the crowd. A woman passed me with two children. One of the children had a wooden recorder in his hands. I knew them too. They are depicted in the 27th Southern Hall, a statue of two children laughing, one of them holding a flute. I came out of the park. The city streets rose up around me. There was a hotel with a courtyard with metal tables and chairs for people to sit in more clement weather. Today they are snow-strewn and forlorn. 
A lattice of wire was strung across the courtyard. Paper lanterns were hanging from the wires, spheres of vivid orange that blew and trembled in the snow and the thin wind. The sea-gray clouds raced across the sky, and the orange lanterns shivered against them. The beauty of the house is immeasurable, its kindness infinite. If you enjoyed this podcast, consider subscribing to Weird Studies on your favorite podcasting platform. You can also follow us on Twitter, visit the Weird Studies subreddit, and of course, support us on Patreon. Music for the podcast is composed and performed by Pierre-Yves Martel, and the show is made with the assistance of Meredith Michael. Thank you for listening. <laughs>